You're listening to the New City Church Podcast. These episodes are recorded live on Gadigal land. Sometimes the audio quality might not be perfect because what you're listening to is a conversation. We don't edit out the chatter. We think that's what makes it authentic. Wherever you're tuning in from, we hope you find this episode encouraging. Good evening. Um, let me add my welcome to Matt. If this is your first time here, or you're new, or you consider yourself newish in any way, um, and welcome to those who have joined us online. I'm just going to line some things up so that um, I can sit and they can see. <laughs> Success. <laughs> um, uh, you may have noticed that we don't have much technology tonight, no speakers, no projector, um, which is really annoying because I had a VeggieTales clip for you. Yeah, I know, devastating. You can all go home. Um, um, no, we uh, got here to discover that the basement where all our stuff is stored is locked. So um, that, that's, that's why we have no tech. So we have pivoted. We're good at that these days. Um, so no VeggieTales for you. Um, no cute slideshow with all these pictures and animations. Like, I went all out this week with the slideshow. Um, and you will never see it. Um, but we are... We, yeah, sure, I'll upload it and be like, hey, this is what you missed out on. Um, we are jumping into the book of Jonah. Um, who has read the book of Jonah in the last couple of years? A few people? Nice. Who has... Um, who has sat through a sermon series through the book of Jonah before in their life? Few people. Um, uh, Jonah is, okay, Sunday school kills most Bible stories quite nicely. So if you grew up in Sunday school, you probably, you probably read most Old Testament stories in particular and you got the gist that there was a nice moral story to it that was coming through and generally the moral lesson that you learn at Sunday school is like, be a nice person. Um, and Jonah is, um, it's up there, I reckon, like it's a hard-hitting contender for the one that Sunday school butchered the most, most likely. Um, because if you, if you know anything about the book of Jonah, even if you haven't grown up in church at all, you'll know that it's about Jonah and the whale. Whale, whale. yeah. Um, or, or more correctly, like the big fish. Um, uh, but... Uh, fun fact, Jonah is not just about a big fish. I know, there's so much to it. Um, who here, as a child, ran away from home? There's some stories I want to hear. <laughs> um, my parents, um, they, they wouldn't let me go over to Max Steele's house for a sleepover. Um, I know, yeah, I know. Thank you, thank you. But they're, they're, they're horrible people. Like you all, you know my parents. They're coming to the birthday party next week. They're terrible people, um, and they wouldn't let me go over. And so I naturally ran away. Um, and I did the thing where you find a stick, kind of Blinky Bill style, and a big napkin, and you put your stuff in the napkin and you tie it up. Like there was, like there was a school bag right there that I could just, but no, they're like. Not what Blinky Bill did. So um, packed it. My parents called the Savianas, a couple of doors up, and they're like, "By the way, Joel's coming up. Super cute." Um, <laughs> so I made up there, and they sent me home. Um, I uh, I ran away, and it, the, 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 
from something that was probably a good thing to do. Uh, and the whole time we're looking at it and we're like, oh, Jonah, that's cute. Nice try. Um, so we're, we're diving into this book and it is more than a kid's book. Um, it's, it's more than uh, something for Sunday school. It's more than a nice moral analogy. Um, it gets pretty heavy. Um, and so we're, we're going to sit in that. Um, it is about God's extravagant love. That, that is in there. Um, as we go through, we're going to look at what it means to cry out to God. That's going to be in there. Um, we're going to look at the concept of enemies because that's, that's really important that we wrestle with that. Um, for some of you who call yourselves Christians, there's going to be a bit of a challenge in there. I hope, I hope a bit of a, like a, one of those good slaps that you get sometimes where it's like, oh, that's important for me to, to wake up and be alert to. Um, for those who are maybe just exploring faith, trying to work out where you stand, uh, I hope that the book of Jonah is uh, relevant in some way to your life. I, I think it is really relevant to 21st century. Um, I think I've said enough in terms of introduction. Maybe not. Let, let's just keep going and we'll, we'll see where we land. Uh, one of the things that often does, gets done poorly when it comes to the book of Jonah is that the, the preacher or whoever who's discussing it breaks it up into four chunks, chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, chapter four, and each chunk has its little own moral story that we're taking away. Um, that's, that's another way to butcher it. Um, so we're not going to do that, but it is nice to sit in the story and soak in it a little bit. So Sammy is going to come up and read chapter one for us, but then I'm going to hopefully give some context around the story and then just tell the rest of the story all in one night, so that we, we know the whole thing. I'm going to give away the ending, <laughs> so sorry. Um, and then we're going to dive into it. And tonight we're asking the question, what do we do when God loves our enemies more than we do? That's, that's kind of where we're, where we're going to sit and wrestle with. That's where we're heading. So Sammy, Jonah chapter 1, pull out your phones or your Bibles if you have them. I think it's great to follow along. Do you mind if I sit here? Get comfortable. Amazing. Um, I think it's also fairly apt that we don't have any technology for tonight, as this is, as you said, like a storytelling that you're going to tell the whole story. If you don't have a Bible or a phone on you, participate in a bit of visual storytelling like we would have done thousands and thousands of years ago. Um, all of the lack of technology tonight is just as God intended. Amen. Um, so in the story if you want to. This is Jonah chapter 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea and a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid and cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice so that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. 
So they asked him, tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I'm Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them. And they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, what should we do to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that this is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of that fish for three days and three nights. Thank you, Sammy. Gosh, you're a good reader. Um, uh, so that's, that's chapter one of the book of Jonah. Um, it's... It's an epic story. Let me run through a couple more mistakes that I think people make when coming to the book of Jonah. Um, hopefully this lays a bit of framework for the next few weeks as we, as we dive into it. Um, and for some of you, you're gonna zone out at this point and it's gonna be super boring. Um, so feel free if you're not the type to enjoy kind of uh, biblical nerdism, um, like zone out and come back in five. We'll be here. Um, uh, a couple of mistakes that people make with reading the book of Jonah. Um, they assume that Jonah is a good guy. That's mistake number one. Um, he's kind of the flawed hero of the story who gets it right in the end. Um, I'm going to say from the outset, bum, bum, like Jonah is not a good guy. Jo- Jonah is a bad guy, um, uh, which is bizarre because Jonah is a prophet of Yahweh. Like we're, the, the prophets of Yahweh are supposed to be good. They're supposed to speak the words of God. Um, and when we read this, uh, if you were an Israelite familiar with the history of Israel, you would have known that Jonah had popped up in the story before in the book of Kings. He made a prophecy to, to uh, who was it? Jeroboam. And Jeroboam was bad king number one. Like he, he was a shocker. And Jonah prophesied in favor of Jeroboam. A little bit later, Amos actually undoes Jonah's prophecy and wins. So I don't know, it's that whole like, if I pray harder, who's gonna win kind of thing. I don't know how it works. But, but Jonah from the outset is kind of like a, a bit of an anti-hero in this story. So if you, if you grew up with Jonah being kind of the, the flawed hero, I wanna un- unwind that a little bit because I think it helps moving forward. Um, another big conversation that people get sucked into when we're looking at the book of Jonah is, did the story actually happen? Ooh. That's a, yeah, it's clearly some of you are just like, who cares? Um, but some of you are like, no, this is foundational. Um, particularly if you have been to evangelical theological colleges, this is a big discussion that rages. And even within you know, your, your most orthodox evangelical camps, there's, there's two different ways of looking at it. One is 
and this is what is often spoken about, you have to believe that the book of Jonah is real because in Matthew 12, Jesus speaks about Jonah and seems to assume that Jonah existed. Um, and if you don't believe that the book of Jonah is real, then clearly you don't believe that miracles can happen, which I think is a bit of a straw man argument, but that's how it's often spoken about. Uh, the flip side is, as Thomas said today, Jonah's a bit of a weird book, hey? <laughs> yes, it is, it is, it's bizarre. And then, you know, the Bible is full of weird stuff, but nothing quite compares to a person being swallowed by a big fish and just like in the muck for three, nothing quite compares. Um, and so there's this big question mark over, did, did Jonah actually happen or was it a different genre? And th this is personally where I land, but, but you can land wherever you land. Um, uh, when we come to any text in the Bible, we want to first of all ask, hey, wh what are we reading? Is it poetry? Is it prose? Is it lists of gene genealogies? Is it parable? And that just helps us understand how we're supposed to read it. Are we taking it literally, etc. Um, uh, the book of Jonah reads like one of my favorite genres, which is satire. That's, that's what Jonah is. It's satire through and through. So satire, if you think about it, it is um, The Onion or Sean McAuliffe or The Batuta Advocate. No, blank, blank. Okay, yeah, we have a few people who are like, yeah, no, I know The Batuta Advocate. Um, satire, what it does is it takes people who are generally historically real um, and it... it turns them into kind of generic characters and then it puts them in ridiculous situations. That's, what, that's how satire works. It takes these generic stock, usually, um, you know, they're politicians or famous people or um, Karens is a popular, popular one at the moment. Like it, it takes a generic stock person, puts them in ridiculous situations with the idea of showing how foolish their actions are. That's what satire is, is supposed to achieve. But the key to satire is that it's not just a story. Satire is supposed to be a mirror. It's supposed to be something that you look at and you see and say, oh, that person is acting really foolishly. What does that say about me? That's how, that's how satire is supposed to function. And so I tend to think, um, and again, with this always disagreements in this space and you, you're free to, to believe however you want. Um, I tend to think that is more what we're looking at here. Jonah was probably a real guy according to the, the biblical text, but the authors of Jonah were like, okay, if we take a bad prophet and put him in the context of Israel, what happens? And what does that teach us about Israel? So I think that that's what we're supposed to look at here. We're supposed to be seeing this satirical look at what happens if, if, uh, if Jonah, or if anybody for that matter, is asked to do something by God that they'd really rather not. Complicated, hey. A um, couple of other things that just make, and I'm, I'm almost stopped nerding here, so you, yeah, warning, come back. Um, uh, a couple of other things that kind of make it a bit satirical. The, the word for huge 
the Hebrew word gadol is used 14 times in these chapters. Everything in this book is huge. So the fish is huge. The storm is huge. The boat is huge. The city is huge. Um, in fact, the city is so huge that it takes three days to walk across, which is stupid. There was, there was no city in the ancient world that took three days to walk across. Like, Max was kind of like 14 kilometers. Like, they could, it, there's no such thing as Nineveh that took three days to walk, walk across. And the authors, I think, know this. The king of Nineveh never named. It just, it's, it's not relevant. And that stands in quite a bit of contrast to most of the history that we read of in the Bible, which is really at pains to make it sound, at least, like it's grounded in, in reality. The author of Jonah just doesn't care. Uh, they're just like, okay, this happened. Let's see what comes next. Does that make sense? So I think as we go through, that's what we're supposed to be looking at. We're looking at a mirror to say, okay, what does, what does this character's actions as we go through teach me about me? Uh, what, is, what does this character's actions teach me about how I interact with the world, how I interact with Yahweh? I'm going to take a sip. Does this make sense so far? Um, if you have any questions, just throw your hand up um, and uh, we, we can flesh it out because it's, it's a complex book, but it's also really beautiful. As we go through, you, you'll see the structure unfold and it's, it's put together in a really deliberate way. Shall we go through the story? Let's do it. Let's, let, let's go through the book of Jonah. Um, it starts with the word of the Lord. Bing! Okay, we're reading prophecy. That's the, that's the token there. Um, it, as you go through the Bible, usually the book of the prophets begin with, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Um, and Yahweh says, go to Nineveh and preach against them because their evil has, has reached me. Um, let's do some context. Let's do some context here. Israel has been taken over by the Assyrian nation. The Assyrian nation has come in and absolutely obliterated the northern kingdom. Ten tribes of Israel have been taken into captivity. In popular culture, you might call them the ten lost tribes. They, they never return back. They have been taken by this nation that is known to be horrific in the way that it treats its captives. It's, it's captives. Uh, the kingdom of Assyria was famous. Well, first of all, they were the first ones to kind of use iron in, in their weapons. So they to come in and kill quite quickly. Uh, but they're famous for how gruesome they were. So out of Assyria, as they spread across the ancient Near East, we have all of these stories of how they would go in and just like flay whole cities of people. And it was just, it was just what they did. Um, they would go in and they would flay them. And then anyone who survived whilst having been tortured would be marched back into whatever city that was closest to Assyria and just be made a show, a spectacle. That's, that's how the Assyrian nation ruled. It was partly through brute force, but mostly it was through terror. And as they, as they spread, 
they would suck in all of the people around them and they would force them to become Assyrians, they would decimate their local gods and essentially uh, through through fear they would they would control. That, that's just how Assyria worked. I have a great quote on the slide if you want to look. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, maybe I can still actually read it for you. Um, I realise, like, I still have a voice. Um... Uh, okay, here we go. This is from historian Simon Anglum. The Assyrians created the world's first great army, the world's first great empire, held together by siege war warfare and reliance on sheer unadulterated uh, terror. Um, one of the kings says this. This is an example of, of how this king took over. Um, I built a pillar at the city gate and I flayed all the chief men who had revolted and I covered the pillar with their skin. Some I walled up inside the pillar. I don't know how that works. Like I, I guess it's like a pillar with people inside it now. Um, some I impaled upon the pillar on stakes. Yeah, like, like gross stuff. Um, that's, that's how the kingdom of Assyria worked. And this historian says such punishments were not uncommon. Furthermore, inscriptions recording these vicious acts of retribution were displayed throughout the empire to serve as a warning. So that's, that's the Assyrian nation. And at this point when Jonah is being written, we think it was written probably around somewhere between the 5th and the 3rd century BC, like fairly, fairly big time frame there. Um, at this time, the Babylon army had come in as well. So the south was getting ready to fall or perhaps had already fallen. Israel is being decimated. They've destroyed Samaria, the northern capital. They've killed so many people. Family members have been murdered. Children have been taken. The nation is in ruins. The temple is about to fall or has fallen. Israel is devastated. And the word of the Lord comes to Jonah son of Amittai, and says, go to Nineveh. Nineveh is the capital city of Assyria. Oh, what do you do? Nineveh is the capital city of this empire that has decimated your family, that has destroyed your people. It has taken away your children, it has plundered your homes, destroyed your villages. And the word of the Lord comes and says, go to Nineveh, go to their capital city, because the extent of their evil has now reached me. Uh, Jonah doesn't go to Nineveh. In fact, he goes the opposite direction. Um, he heads off to Tarshish. Now, if you see on the map behind me, um, Nineveh was west, Tarshish is east. It's picture like Strait of Gibraltar area. It is the furthest east that you can possibly go in the known world. Like he is, he is gone. He hasn't just chosen to go there, like to Egypt. No, he, he has gone as far as you can possibly go in the known world. And he's like, hell no, screw you. I, I, I am not, I, like I am not going to Nineveh. And he doesn't tell us at this point why. 
maybe it's because he's scared. Maybe like maybe that's why. But but we find out a bit later why it is. But at this point, it's, it's we're left in the dark. Uh, he and he gets on this boat full of sailors, these rough sailors who worship the gods. Well, any we we're not told these these nameless gods, and I think we're supposed to see them as kind of these, these pagans, almost the antithesis of the good Israelite. That's that's how they're almost framed. And he gets on this boat, falls asleep. God sends a big storm. The sailors are like, "What's going on here?" They cast lots to find out who they're like. Eeny, meeny, miny, mo. Who did this? Like, whose god has sent this storm along? They wake up Jonah and say, can't you see? Like the rest of us are panicking here. Pull your weight. Pray to your God. What, what's gone on? Like what's happening? Now, Jonah has already boasted to them and like, just so you know, I'm running from God. This, this God called Yahweh, uh, this God who happens to be the God of the land and sea. Come on, Jonah. Like get with the program. Um, and he says, throw me overboard, which feels a bit like a selfless act. But I don't think it is. I think at this point, it's just him saying, I'm really not going to Nineveh. Like there's, there's nothing you can make me do that will get me to, it's not going to happen. In fact, just kill me. So they throw him overboard and these pagan, I think is a, like, it's a bit of a funny word, but the, the, these pagan sailors, they end up worshiping Yahweh. They end up sacrificing. and. And yet this foil to Jonah, uh, foil number one, Jonah is this prophet of God who's supposed to be the spokesperson for God. But instead, who is the spokesperson for God in this story? It's these pagan sailors. They're the ones who say, okay, maybe there's something to be learned in looking out for Yahweh, the God of land and sea. Jonah goes in the water. Swimming around, goes down into the deep. If you're watching Veggie Tales, the seaweed comes up. Uh, a big fish comes and gobbles Jonah up. That's the end of chapter one. That's Sammy Goddess too. In the fish, Jonah gives us probably the first recorded apology that is not an apology. <laughs> That's what comes next. Uh, it is... This mea culpa, which never really lands anywhere. He's like, woe is me. I'm sorry, but not sorry. I am going to worship Yahweh, though. That's what I'm going to do. And if we go to it, chapter 2, um, we're actually going to go through it in a little bit more depth in a couple of weeks' time. Um, it ends with this. Jonah chapter 2, verse 8. To those who cling, this is him kind of having a bit of a dig. I'm like, come on, Jonah, you're not in a position of power here. <laughs> to those who cling to worthless idols, oh, sorry, those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them, which is patently untrue because we've just seen it. It's literally just happened in the story. But I, Jonah, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you, which is also patently untrue doesn't happen. I will say, I, Jonah, will say, salvation comes from the Lord. Salvation comes from Yahweh. That's what I'm going to say. That, that's what I will proclaim. 
And then Yahweh commands the fish and it vomits Jonah out onto dry land. And Jonah gets a second chance. And the, the thing that Jonah is going to say now that he has this second chance is brilliant. He is going to say salvation comes from the Lord. This is your chance, Nineveh, to actually follow the ways of goodness, to follow the ways of generosity and mercy, all of these things that we've come to associate with the true prophets of God. Salvation comes from the Lord. He goes to Nineveh and he he actually does it this time. I don't think it was his choice to go there. Um, It's... It's one of those, you had a choice, but you didn't really have a choice in the end. Um, like, you, you, you were going to go there. Um, and he starts preaching. Jonah starts preaching. Now, I'm aware that sometimes sermons can go too long. I'm very aware of that. Um, uh, sometimes preachers have been known to be a little long-winded, and they just keep going. They really labor upon um, the sermon can be too short and miss some really vital points. Here's Jonah's sermon in chapter 3, verse 4. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, are you ready for it? 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's it. That's it. That's, that's all he says. 40 more days and Nineveh is going to be overthrown and he just goes through the city proclaiming that and you're left wondering, it's like, okay, what, what about the love of God? Like, what about the generosity of God? What about the mercy of God? What about the repentance that says, oh, okay, I'm going to stop flaying people? Like, what, what about the call to justice? And we're left, I think, with a bit of taste in our mouth from this sermon because Jonah has not included the whole truth. All he has said is 40 more days and Nineveh, you're going to be overturned. And in that, I think you almost get a sense of glee for Jonah. I think he wants it. I think he's hopeful for it. I think he thinks that's what Nineveh deserves. I think he's looking forward to it. There's a bit of a pun here. Uh, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned or overthrown in this translation. Uh, For the Hebrew, it could be likewise put as turned over. Jonah, sick of the city, walks out, goes out beyond the walls of the city, and we're told he sits and he waits for its destruction. But not before the king repents. All of a sudden, the city of Nineveh starts saying, oh, we've done something wrong. We need to turn away from what we've been doing. We need to look into this Yahweh figure. And everybody, we're told, from the king down to the cows, the cows get a mention here, everybody goes into fasting mode, they put sackcloths on and they repent. And the city of Nineveh is overthrown. But not in the way that Jonah was hoping. The city of Nineveh, in so many of its ways, its rituals, its ruthless way of being in the world, ceases to exist. It's how God works. 
When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, God relented and didn't bring on them the destruction that had been threatened. Now, that is where most kids' books end. That's kind of where the story of Jonah wraps up, if you were to learn it in Sunday school. But that's not where the story ends. That's three quarters of it. There's a whole other chapter. At this point, Jonah, sitting outside the city, is pissed off with God. He is raging at this point. And let's look at why, chapter 4. But to Jonah, this seemed wrong. He became very angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Yahweh, when I was still at home? This, this is why I fled to Tarshish. This is it. This is why I fled. Because I knew, I knew all along that you are a God who is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. God, I, I knew that you were going to be gracious. I knew that you were going to care for Nineveh. But the Assyrians have wiped out my people. The Assyrians have destroyed everything I love. The Assyrians have ruined my life. And you, God, have the audacity to care for them. Hell no. I'm going to Tashish. I'm tapping out. I can't do that. Jonah keeps going. God, take away my life. It's better for me to die than to live at this point. God responds, Jonah, is it, is it right for you to be angry with me at this point? What do you reckon? You don't have to answer that. I say yes. Like, if I'm looking at a mirror, at this point, I'm kind of with Jonah. Like, of course. There, there doesn't seem to be a, well, maybe not, of course. Like, there, it, it feels like Jonah has really good reason to not be particularly happy now. Where's the justice? Is it, like, God is a God of justice, yeah? It's complicated. This story keeps going now. Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city, and God sends up a vine to protect him from the sun. And Jonah is really happy about this vine, really glad that it's there. 
doesn't thank God for it, but he's glad that there's a, a vine to protect him from the sun. Uh, Jonah falls asleep, and as the night goes on, God sends a worm that eats the root of the vine. It's kind of like all of our garden. Like I just don't have a green thumb. It just keeps dying. Um, but a, a worm eats the roots. The vine dies. Jonah wakes up and is royally pissed and is so angry that this vine is dead. And God has the final say in the book of Jonah. Here it is. You have been concerned about this plant, says God to Jonah, though you didn't tend to it, you didn't grow it. It sprang up overnight and it died overnight, says God. And should I, God, should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who can't tell their right hand from their left? And also, many animals. And that's the end of Jonah. That's how it finishes. Uh, The actual Hebrew is also many cows, is how it's been translated for most of history. And that's that's how it finishes. God has the last say. God says, this city of Nineveh, 120,000 people. Shouldn't I care about that? Shouldn't I I love the city of Nineveh, Jonah? And five minutes ago, I had the gall to look at God and say, how dare you care? How dare you care about the Assyrians? In fact, most of us had the goal to look at Nineveh, to look at God and say, how dare you? And we're left in this big quandary where God, in all of God's wisdom and majesty, loves our enemies. That's quandary number one, that God loves our enemies. I've seen through the week, who, who are my enemies? There's lots of people who I'm angry at. There's lots of people who I think are doing deeply unjust things in the world. There are, there are so many people People that I know, but also people that I see on TV who are acting in ways that are so antithetical to what I think God wants for the world. And they dare to do it in the name of Jesus. And it infuriates me. And as I've been sitting with the book of Jonah over the past couple of weeks, this voice has just been ringing in my head, 
maybe the spirit, maybe my conscience, maybe, I don't know, um, saying, God loves these people. That's not saying, though, that God approves of unjust activity at all. In fact, Nineveh was overthrown. We know that in this story. Nineveh was overthrown. Their evil ways ceased being there. And so the people and the cows started living in a way that was honouring of God. And in that, I take it with the law of God, that what we mean there so often is was honouring of people and honouring of creation. I, I think Nineveh is supposed to be held up as this picture alongside the sailors as this foil to say, just because you're a prophet of God does not give you the right to rule the line of who is in and who is out. Rachel Held Evans, uh, the late Rachel Held Evans, uh, who many of you have known and loved, says this. The apostles remembered what many modern Christians tend to forget, that what makes the gospel offensive isn't who it keeps out, but who it lets in. What makes the story of Jesus offensive, what makes the story of God offensive, isn't who it says no to, it's who it embraces and says, you are welcome to call yourself a child of God. You are welcome at this table. You are welcome in this space, not just as an outcast who's been brought in, but as a member of the family adopted as a child of the Most High God. That's the status that the gospel bestows upon our enemies. It's offensive. And it should be offensive. It should offend our sensibilities. Because God's love is extravagant. That's quandary number one, I said. And I want to finish with quandary number two because I think it's, it's perhaps more relevant to at least a, a few people here. Um, and that is, for a long time, uh, many of us, myself at one point included, saw ourselves, because this is what we'd been told, saw ourselves in this story, not as Jonah, not as the prophet who had failed, but as the Ninevites. I was the enemy of the church. I was the one who was committing horrendous acts by leading people away from God. I was the one who was the antithesis of the true church. And I'd say for a lot of people in here, you've been in that territory, maybe not in those words, but you know what it feels like when people who claim to be prophets of God will have nothing to do with you because they think that you are the enemy. 
And you hear it enough times and you start believing it. And it soaks in. And gradually you start to see yourself not as a good guy in the story, but as the ones who did play, as the ones who walked away. And the story of Jonah flies in the face of that. And it breaks it down to say, no, 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 it's not the enemies of God who are loved, it's the wrong premise. It's that you were never the enemy. Nineveh wasn't the enemy in the story of Jonah. Nineveh was the dearly loved children of the Most High God. It just took us till the last paragraph to get there. And I think that is what we need to sit with in the book of Jonah. That you and I have a place in the kingdom of God. And when we read the story of Jonah, it's like this mirror that's put up before us. And sure, we might see snippets of ourselves throughout it, but really for me, it hits home in that last moment where I look and I see that my old life, where I was the enemy, branded, that has been overthrown. And this huge embrace has come from God. And that is now where I sit. Jonah is not a story about a whale. Um, Jonah is a story about this extravagant love of God, which declares that even those who might feel so far from God are actually central to God's heart. That, that's, the, that's the journey of Jonah. And that, that's where I want to take us as we look into it. The next two weeks we're away, but the, the few weeks after that, it's a, it's a four-part series. And if you look at the slide behind me, it's a great joke. <laughs> um, the four weeks look like this. Uh, week one is too much love. We, we've covered that. Uh, week two, in a few weeks' time, is what do we do when we're running from God? What does that feel like? Why do we do it? It's, it's an existential cry that I think we all have when we, we flee from something good. What, what, what does that look like? We're going to wrestle with that. Week three, we're going to ask the question, what does it mean to be behind enemy lines? Plot thickens. Uh, and then week four, we're going to tie, tie it all together uh, with this idea of crying out to God. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to focus on Jonah chapter two for that, that section. So that's where we're heading. Um, I hope that tonight has uh, encouraged you to reread Jonah with fresh eyes. Um, it's satire. It's funny. It's weird. It's, it's abrasive. It's supposed to get under our skin and annoy us so that we can look at it and say, maybe something about my life needs to change. Maybe something about the way that I see myself or the way that I see the people around me, it needs to shift. Because maybe, just maybe, God has a better story for my life 
but I just don't see it. Let's check that out together. That's, that's where I want to take this, and I hope that it's encouraging for you. Can I pray for us? Let me pray. God, we thank you that your love embraces the Assyrian Empire. And it doesn't condone Nineveh, but it calls Nineveh to a better way. We thank you that in your mercy and grace, you overthrow evil and you bring new life. We thank you that you are a God of renewal and resurrection. And God, the gospel is offensive because of who it lets in. God, when we are tempted to sit in judgment over others, would you open our eyes to and God, when we are tempted to believe that we do not belong in your kingdom, would you send your people, send your spirit, heck, send your angels to remind us that we are children of the most high God and that this is where we belong. Thank you for the book of Jonah and all of its complexity and history. Thank you for the reminder that it is of the extravagant love of God.